Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Hello, my name is Stephen Brooks, a physician and associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Queen's University and the current chair of the Science Subcommittee. I have the great pleasure today of interviewing Drs. Adam Chang and Aaron Donahue about the AHA 2020 education guidelines. Dr. Chang is a pediatric emergency physician and professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary. And Dr. Donahue is an attending physician in the emergency department, trauma center, and pediatric intensive care unit at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's an associate professor of clinical anesthesiology and critical care at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Aaron, maybe you can start us off by explaining what the AHA 2020 education guidelines are and why they are so important for the AHA and the different audiences who may read the guidelines. The 2020 guidelines for education, as well as for the other areas that are covered, um, reflect the most current resuscitation science and treatment recommendations. Our section for education deals more particularly with the manner in which, you know, that sort of essential link in the chain of survival of getting knowledge about management of cardiac arrest and other resuscitation topics out to providers and to the public uh, and trying to optimize their implementation for learners at various levels of both in and outpatient as well as out hospital uh, care providers. And um, the clinical recommendations are meant to reflect the most ideal practice of resuscitation science, not just in North America, but worldwide. Fantastic. So this piece is, uh, I would imagine, very important with respect to knowledge translation in how we translate our clinical guidelines and ensure that we optimize their actual performance in the real world. Yeah, I think that's, that's very accurate, yes. Adam, can you tell us how these recommendations in the education guidelines were created and maybe tell us a little bit about the process that your team used and, and what types of evidence the recommendations are based on? Sure, Steve. Um, so the process is a pretty detailed process. It's work done in conjunction with the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, ILCOR. So ILCOR's work involves many systematic reviews related to resuscitation education. And from that, they develop an international consensus on CPR with treatment recommendations or CoSTAR statement. So we take those completed reviews and um, generate guidelines from them. What's happened recently is that in conjunction with ILCOR, the AHA's Emergency Cardiovascular Care Committee has initiated a continuous evidence review process. And what that does is it allows us to provide a more rapid translation of new knowledge into updated guidelines for CPR, and in this case, resuscitation education. So what you'll see is the most up-to-date compilation of evidence that's relevant to resuscitation education. In our group, we also identified additional topics that weren't covered by ILCOR that we thought warranted review. Some of these topics had evidence updates, but primarily for topics that were from prior guidelines. And for newer topics, we conducted scoping reviews, and this allowed us to generate recommendations on a broad variety of topics um, related to resuscitation education that we believe 
are going to directly impact uh, outcomes if they're implemented appropriately. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the writing group was formed and, and what kind of individuals are, are, are in the writing group? Yeah, great question. So our writing group was formed um, very carefully. Uh, we wanted to pick individuals that not only had expertise on the topic at hand, resuscitation education, we wanted to select folks that were involved in research that had conducted reviews before, but also sort of spanned a very broad range of expertise, clinical expertise, uh, methodological expertise, and interests. So I think we got a great balance. Uh, we have folks that are researchers, physicians, nurses, and folks with PhD backgrounds that contributed significantly to developing these guidelines. Aaron, um, can you talk to us about the target audience for the AHA education guidelines? This chapter is important, as we mentioned, for knowledge translation, but within the, the system of care, who are we really hoping reads this chapter and takes up our recommendations and, and implements them? So I think, um, you know, you could probably uh, view any chapter of the guidelines as being applicable across, you know, the, the, the range of the healthcare delivery system, whether it's, you know, actual healthcare providers, but also administrators, policy personnel, researchers, etc. The facet that I think is a little bit more unique for the education chapter is that some of the things that we put out would probably be of particular pertinence to uh, people that are education directors, life support course directors, training center directors, et cetera, people that are responsible for, you know, directly applying the courses that the AHA provides. And it would be, as far as the ultimate target of provider that that knowledge and its translation and implementation land to, uh, it could be, you know, anybody from lay people all the way up to, you know, uh, senior clinicians in any hospital setting. And Adam, once we have published the 2020 guidelines, can you talk to us about how the recommendations will be implemented into the practices of the AHA and perhaps how you envision these recommendations being implemented into the practices of training centers and others teaching ACLS and, and BLS and other topics to our care providers? I think the question is an important question because we can publish guidelines, but if nothing's done and there's no follow through, then certainly there won't be much impact on patient outcomes from cardiac arrest. So uh, the AHA has been working on this for many, many years. It's a longitudinal process and the changes don't just happen immediately following guidelines. There's ongoing discussion and, and a process in place to ensure that there's improvements in the quality of training materials. So. So the educational and training materials, for example, uh, BLS for healthcare providers, ACLS, PALS, that are developed by the AHA programs are based on prior guidelines and focused updates. Uh, once these guidelines are published, the ECC training materials, courses, programs, and all the products that are produced are updated to reflect what's written in the guidelines. And so, for example, you know, within the past five to ten years there's been the release of the new rqi program which reflects sort of a spaced training mode or modality integrated with directive uh, cpr feedback and so those are sort of two key topics that we discuss in the guidelines that have already been integrated into this new ha program so um, that's just one example we will see some changes 
in the upcoming products for 2020 and that reflect the guidelines that are published. From a programmatic point of view, I think it's important to recognize that change can sometimes be difficult. And um, with all the new evidence that reviewed and the guidelines that are coming out, we sort of appreciate that there will require some transitionary period in order for programs to adopt these new changes. So reach out to the AHA for questions. Let us know how the changes are going. Provide us feedback. And uh, we really are here to support you in, in implementing these new changes for 2020. So now onto the good stuff, we're going to get your opinion on some of the highlights and key science updates in the 2020 guidelines chapter. This is a, a packed chapter, but Adam, can you kick us off here and give us uh, what you think are the most important science updates in the chapter? When we came about developing these guidelines, we thought about this notion of educational efficiency. And within that, I really wanted to unpack questions related to instructional design. Instructional design being, you know, how course offerings and programs are constructed, the nuts and bolts, and how they're delivered. And so from an instructional design point of view, um, there are several important updates and new recommendations. Uh, firstly, we found that a deliberate practice and a mastery learning model uh, should be incorporated into basic advanced life support. So deliberate practice providing multiple opportunities for learners to practice with feedback and a mastery learning model incorporates an assessment component where learners are meant to achieve a predetermined standard before progressing to the next module. Um, we also found from review of the evidence that booster sessions or additional training that's spaced out over time uh, are recommended to improve skill retention after initial training or initial CPR courses. Space learning, which is a concept where sessions are distributed over time and new content or pre-existing content distributed over time, it can be used in place of traditional mass learning approaches and in some instances may actually improve learning outcomes. As I had mentioned before, CPR feedback devices or devices that provide real-time feedback on the quality of CPR, such as CPR depth, CPR rate, recoil, uh, these should be used during training because we know that use of these devices helps to improve skill acquisition and long-term retention. We actually explored the use of virtual reality and gamified learning in resuscitation training, and we found that virtual reality or the use of a computer interface to create an immersive environment and gamified learning, which is sort of using play and competition with other learners to promote learning, both of these can be incorporated into resuscitation training for lay people and healthcare providers as a supplemental modality of learning. And then the other one that was really interesting was this notion of in situ training, where training occurs in actual patient care areas. And in our review of the literature, we found that this is an effective modality of training, and it can be used either in place of or in addition to traditional classroom and simulation center-based training to supplement uh, learning outcomes. That sounds great. You know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about a number of implementation issues that people will need to think about, you know, associated with each of these recommendations. Did you get into any of that in the chapter with respect to, you know, just for example, thinking about virtual reality or uh, in situ training? Is there any content in the chapter about how to implement these type of programs? In the guidelines themselves, we don't dive into implementation or strategies for implementation. Uh, that being said, I think 
for specific instructional design features or modalities of training, there are of course uh, cost and resource implications. Um, some of them require the acquisition of additional materials and resources and others require expertise. And so um, even for something like deliberate practice and mastery learning, uh, that may be a new way of teaching for many resuscitation instructors. And so there will be some training required for educators and instructors to get up to speed on these new models. And so it will require some, some work. Uh, there will be a learning curve, but we do think that um, if programs are able to implement some of these changes that we'll likely see improvements uh, in outcomes from cardiac arrest. Thanks, Adam. I understand there are new recommendations to enhance education. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, by way of background, I think these recommendations are of particular interest simply because, you know, those of us who have a background in uh, CPR science have known for a long time that bystander CPR is most definitely a contributor and independent uh, predictor of better outcomes as far as survival from cardiac arrest. And um, it's been historically a more challenging and maybe a more frustrating needle to move because when you look across communities, there are great differences. Even cities in the United States have vastly differing rates of bystander CPR for reasons that are you know, sometimes a little bit difficult to, to pin down. So I think that Adam alluded earlier to the use of scoping reviews as far as the evidence collection process. And I think this particular area probably benefited in particular from that approach because it let us garner information and publish data from some sources that may not have necessarily been ones we would commonly go to for uh, some of the harder core science topics. And looking at things like attitudes and readiness among lay people and stuff like that, that sort of qualitative research I think is a little bit more elusive. So I think summarizing that in a succinct, rigorous way was challenging for us, but I think in the end, it's sort of a glimpse into an area that's ultimately under-investigated. Some of the particular recommendations that were associated with this go-around in the 2020 guidelines, I mean, one of the simplest ones is that we obviously recommend the um, continued widespread dissemination of training campaigns, whether it's in classrooms uh, by individuals, so-called mass training events, public awareness campaigns, and public awareness of things like hands-only CPR, which has been pushed in some of our communities across the United States for some time with good results. And we recommend that those things obviously be maintained and promoted in an ongoing widespread way, because that is, you know, one of the most measurable contributors to what will ultimately improve outcomes from out-of-hospital arrest. When you drill a little deeper from an instructional design standpoint, um, some of the evidence we found was that for lay people instruction, self-directed learning, where the learner is simply teaching themselves with the help of whether it's computer-based or mannequin-based or a combination thereof, seems to have a decent amount of effectiveness, even in comparison with instructor-led training. And so given that self-directed training is easier to disseminate, likely less expensive as, you know, with regard to personnel and equipment, like Adam was talking about just a moment ago, that may be one easy way to lower a barrier to layperson training and improving, you know, the, um, the prevalence of layperson readiness to perform CPR. 
a couple of more current things that came up. One of them was the availability of training for lay people to learn how to respond to victims of opioid overdoses, including naloxone administration. And we know that this has gained quite a foothold with uh, pre-hospital care and law enforcement, um, that we recommend that the more widespread training for lay people to respond to those overdoses, which continue to be a problem, especially in our country, is important. And then one of the interesting ones, and I'm saying interesting just because there was a very eye-opening abstract that I saw at one of AHA's meetings last year during the Resuscitation Science Symposium, where a researcher looked at available social media on YouTube and Instagram and some other areas and were, did a, a sort of cast a wide net and just looked at you know, a set of videos designed for CPR awareness and CPR instruction. And her finding of interest was how many of those videos feature a, you know, simulated victim who is female, simply, and is not male. And the percentage was startlingly small. And it really sort of hammered home to me the disparities, not just in gender, but in races, in ethnic populations, in socioeconomic populations, where rates of bystander CPR are particularly poor for reasons that have more to do with societal phenomenon. And I think there is a role for us to be aware of those discrepancies and address them directly in terms of how we disseminate these trainings. That's really important and, and timely, I think, with what's happening in society. And, and I think this is an opportunity for us to contribute to reducing disparities like you've mentioned there. I would just like to go back to one of the questions earlier with respect to our target users for this guideline chapter. And I just wanted to get your opinion on what you think clinicians, people who are primarily healthcare providers and perhaps not directly involved in the delivery of training or the delivery of education, what do you think clinicians who read this guidelines chapter will get out of it that they may not get out of other guidelines chapters? You know, as a sort of consumer of training, I think, you know, the role of clinicians is to ask themselves, you know, number one, uh, am I prepared to manage patients who have cardiac arrest? And number two, if I'm not feeling completely prepared or up to date, how can I take advantage of every educational opportunities to optimize my performance? And so uh, traditionally, many providers sort of rely on taking, you know, courses such as ACLS, PALS every couple of years, maybe continuing on to do their, their um, refresher courses. You know, that being said, you know, we sort of know from our review of evidence that skills tend to decay over time, especially for skills that aren't used frequently. And so some healthcare providers in some clinical contexts may not encounter patients with cardiac arrest that frequently. And so they may do CPR once during a course and not never have to do it again until the next course. And so how do we ensure that our providers are maintaining their skills during that period of time between courses. So what this guideline does is it sheds light on strategies to enhance skill reten acquisition and retention over time. And as a consumer of education, I sort of think providers can reflect on what type of educational opportunities they're taking advantage of and being mindful of selecting opportunities that are most likely to address the skills that they're likely to need in looking after patients with cardiac arrest. 
Aaron, what do you think? I was just going to add that, you know, as I hear what you're saying, and then when I think about it from sort of in the other direction, the other thing that strikes me is that if you're a provider who's required to take these courses, um, I would hope that you could look at these guidelines and then reflect honestly if the course you're receiving and the educational methodology you're exposed to is kind of up to these standards that we're recommending. Um, and is there a way that you can, you know, reflect honestly on how you're taught and then, you know, show that back to your instructors, your regional uh, center directors, your educational specialists, to people in the simulator industry who make these devices that we use to enhance training. Because I think to be able to have a good picture of how we would ideally like to see courses conducted, sometimes getting that to be congruous with the feedback we get from the learners themselves is a little bit elusive. And I hope that learners could look at this and have a real clear picture in their mind of what we would like them to receive. Because I think that, you know, more often than we'd like, maybe it's not quite as robust as we're recommending. Well, thank you, Dr. Chang and Dr. Donahue. This has been a fantastic overview of the education guidelines chapter. Um, just before we close out, are there any other issues or remarks you'd like to make for our listeners? I guess the last the last thing I'd like to close with is you know, recognizing that there's been tremendous advances in educational science um, over se the past several decades. While we were reviewing the evidence, we also recognized that there are still fairly significant knowledge gaps. And so, you know, I'm sure there are many researchers out there who are listening and, or, and or reading the guidelines. And, and so I see this as a call to action and I sort of ask for you as researchers, educators to support in our effort to improve the quality of education by conducting research to address some of the critical questions which we've outlined within the guidelines chapter. And with that, I think together we can sort of continue to move, move forward as a community to enhance the impact of resuscitation education on cardiac arrest. Thank you so much for uh, your time today on the podcast, your insights, and, and most importantly, thank you for all of the incredible work you've done to bring this guidelines chapter to reality and publication. I know that it's going to have a profound impact on the way that we deliver education and ultimately uh, improve survival for our patients across the country and around the world. So thank you very much. Um, this has been fantastic. Great. Thanks, Steve. Yes, thank you very much for having us. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.